Matthew chapter 16. Alex is going to be bringing our message this afternoon, but let me read the scriptures. Matthew 16. In verses 13 through 20, we have seen in the last couple of weeks Jesus' wonderful call and his promise as we have heard this morning and been reminded of that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Beginning in verse 21, it says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus said to his, or told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. As Alex comes to preach the word, I just want to have a moment of prayer with him. It has been a full day for Alex uh, today we had our advisory council meeting this afternoon and then there was a family recital uh, for Alex and his kids and Teresa uh, and now he's preaching. So that's been Alex's day and it just seemed appropriate that we pray for his strength and for his grace. So let's pray. Father, please be with our brother, our pastor, our friend. And Father, give strength, give clarity, give focus, give power. Fill him with your spirit, O oh Lord. In this hour of ministry, in this moment, Lord, may your spirit come upon him and upon us so that your word will not only be preached, so that it will be heard in the depths of our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, it's good for us to be together and to worship and to receive. It's a privilege. Most of us have probably heard of the term the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel, the idea that God offers to us as his disciples health and wealth in this life as long as you have faith, as long as you believe. Uh, Joel Osteen, the author of Your Best Life Now, writes, or says, uh, the way I define the prosperity gospel is that I believe God wants you to prosper in your health, in your family, in your relationships, in your business, and in your career. If that is the prosperity gospel, then I do believe that. Another prosperity teacher, Joyce Myers, has said, if you stay in your faith, 
you are going to get paid. I am now living in my reward. And Joyce Meyer, with her private jet and multiple vacation homes, is certainly living in her reward. But here's the question, church. Did Jesus teach that? Did Jesus offer us, as his disciples, health and wealth in this life? Is health and wealth an indicator of God's blessing, God's pleasure upon you as a disciple? Do we have these expectations somehow that if I follow Jesus, that somehow he will provide, he will guarantee health and wealth in this life, as long as I have enough faith? Well, we're going to see in our passage this afternoon the exact opposite. We're going to see you follow Jesus by denying yourself. And taking up your cross. Invisible realities made visible through baptism, the Lord's Supper, and church membership. And verified at the second coming. This is a, this is, this is a very Tim Shorian kind of big idea. Packed and comprehensive and probably too hard to write down. But I'm going to repeat it again if you want to try to write it down. You follow Jesus by denying yourself and taking up your cross. Invisible realities made visible through baptism, the Lord's Supper, and church membership, and verified at the second coming. Again, if you're new to us, as Dan mentioned, we are going through a preaching series in the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel which is about a king and his kingdom, king, which is King Jesus and the kingdom of heaven, which at this point is called the church. We've seen in this series so far the confession of the church, that the church confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what distinguishes the church from the world, what we believe, what we know to be true about who Jesus is. We've also seen last week the church as an institution, that there's a structure, there's an organization defined by none other than King Jesus. We're going to continue that study as we look into God's Word and look specifically at the individual and community aspects of discipleship. You see, individuals have to come to faith in Jesus. Your parents can't do that for you. Your grandparents, your church, your community group leader, each one of us has to individual make that decision to come to faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But when someone comes to faith as an individual, comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they are by definition joined to a community, the church. And you need both aspects of discipleship. You need the individual aspect as well as the community aspect. Individual and community. They're actually kind of like two wings of an airplane. If you only have one or the other, the airplane's not going to fly. If you only have in the individual or only the community aspect, that's not true discipleship. You need both. But discipleship does begin with that individual commitment, what we call, what Jesus calls self-renunciation, a giving up of our life, our preferences, our desires, so that we can have Jesus. A giving up of our life so that we can have Jesus. Jesus, for us, in these verses in Matthew, he sets a high bar for discipleship. Discipleship isn't something you just try out. It's not something that you try out to see if you like it. You're either all in or you're not. You're either a disciple or you're not. You're either committed to the kingdom of heaven or you're not. But here's the amazing thing that Jesus does. As our teacher and Lord, he models this. He models this 
suffering and self-denial, this path of giving up one's life in order to follow God. He models that for us. Let's turn our attention to Matthew 16, verse 21. Follow along as I read verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. A few verses earlier, Jesus had asked his disciples, who do the people, who do the crowd say that I am? Who do the people say that I am? And Peter, the rock, says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So we've seen the person of Christ, that he is God, God the Son, and he is also Messiah, or King. We've seen the person of Christ. Now we're going to zoom in on the work of Christ. Theologians often think about Christology in separate categories, the person and work of Christ. Now here we're going to zoom in on the work of Christ, which the work he has to suffer, to be killed, and then to be raised on the third day. And in these verses, Jesus clarifies for his disciples what a Messiah is going to do. What are the expectations? And he provides for his disciples an unexpected twist in what the Messiah is going to do. See, Jesus is Messiah. He is a king. He is on his way to triumph and glory over sin and Satan and darkness. But that path to triumph and glory takes him through a road of suffering and death. There is a suffering unto glory. There is a cross and then a crown, testing and then triumph. And we see this pattern all throughout redemptive history. Adam and Eve, they were created in the garden. They were placed in there, but they, were, they entered into a period of testing. A period of testing. And if they had passed the test, they would have entered into heavenly and eternal glory. Israel, after Israel was rescued out of Egypt, out of slavery, they didn't enter the promised land immediately. They had to go through the wilderness. And this pattern of suffering unto glory reaches a climax with the Messiah himself, Jesus. But Jesus has hinted at this before. You recall Jesus said that the bridegroom would be taken from them. And just as Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, the Son of Man is going to spend three days in the heart of the earth. But he wasn't explicit about this path of suffering. Now, at this point in the narrative, Jesus is going to be very explicit about what the Messiah is going to do, what the Messiah must do to secure our salvation. And this provokes a response from Peter in verse 22. Let's look at verse 22, at how Peter responds to the Messiah's plans. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter rebukes Jesus. He strongly disapproves of the Messiah's plan. This word rebuke is the same word used when we read about Jesus rebuking the wind and the waves, when Jesus rebukes a demon. Can you imagine the audacity, the arrogance of a disciple rebuking his teacher? Before we're too hard on Peter, though, we have to remember that 
That pride in Peter lives inside of each one of us. Think of all the times we think we know better than God, or we think we know better than his word. If we ever had a place where we think we know better than God's word, that's a dangerous place to be. So let us be on guard against that. But this phrase, far be it from you, could also be translated, God forbid. God forbid you from letting you go to the cross. God stop you. May God stop you from going to the cross. Like Peter is invoking God here. And this double negative is translated, this shall never happen to you. This shall never happen to you. That's like the Greek way of saying, never in a million years. Or under no condition will this ever happen. Or over my dead body. But that provokes an even stronger response from Jesus. Let's look at verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Whoa. That's, that's hard-hitting. That's a painful correction. Jesus just called Peter Satan. I mean, this is a disciple who's now called a devil. Peter's now a hindrance. The rock is now a stumbling stone, something getting in the way, something hindering, an obstacle to Jesus and his mission. Does that sound kind of extreme? Maybe we're thinking, that, that sounds kind of extreme, Jesus. I mean, couldn't you have corrected Peter in a more gentle manner? Maybe pulled him aside and said, hey, hey Peter, I know, you know I've got some ideas about what it means to be a Messiah. You've got some other ideas. Let me just bring some clarification here. Well, it's not extreme. If you think about it, this rebuke in such powerful, clear terms is a profound act of love. If Jesus had taken Peter's advice... Humanity, all of us would have been lost forever, destined for the lake of fire without hope of redemption. That's why the way Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan, gives us a little window into how important the cross is, how important that path of suffering unto glory is for the Messiah. Without that suffering and death of the Messiah, there would be no hope for God's people. That cross, that's not just a part of the Messiah's work. It's central to the Messiah's work. No cross, no Messiah. No cross, no salvation. No redemption, reconciliation, no adoption. No cross, no Christianity. So the cross is not just a peripheral or a, or a side part of the Messiah's mission. It's absolutely central to who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. So the question for us, question for us, is it central for us? Do we think about the cross on a regular basis? Is the cross central to our prayers? Is it central to our singing? Is the cross central to our relationship with God? Do we relate to God on the basis of our achievements, our character, our merit, our morality, or on the reality that I'm a desperately broken and guilty sinner, and it took the cross in order to redeem me. And on that basis alone, I'm able to relate to my Heavenly Father. Did death 
of Jesus Christ. On that basis alone, am I able to relate to God? If you've ever had to download software for an electronic device, you've had to check the box for the EULA, E-U-L-A, the End License User Agreement, End User License Agreement, EULA. How many responsible consumers here have read the fine print before checking that box? Or how many, how many are actually willing to admit that they've read all that fine print before checking the box? Well, most people don't read that fine print. But the fine print is how they get you. The fine print is how you sign away your privacy. You sign away your rights, your protection. But there's no fine print with Jesus. Jesus lays it all out on what it means to be a disciple. He lays it out in big, bold font in terms of what it means to be a disciple. You follow after him. We saw he is going to the cross. He's going to suffer. He's going to die. And that's what he calls disciples to do. Let's look at verses 24 through 26. When Jesus lays it out for his people, what it means to follow him. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? In big, bold font, Jesus explains to each one of us the true path of discipleship. Not just to Peter and the disciples, but to everyone, to anyone, if anyone would come after me. And the cost of discipleship is clear. You have to deny yourself. You have to take up your cross and follow Jesus. You have to give up your life now so that you can gain eternal life later. So unlike Osteen, Jesus isn't offering to us our best life now. In fact, he does the opposite. He says you have to give up your best life now in order to have your best life later. Did you catch that? If you save your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. And the key phrase is my sake. My sake. It's not just any suffering Jesus is talking about. It's suffering for the Savior. Suffering for the Savior. Sometimes we like to read this, and we like to soften this idea of taking up our cross. We, we like to think of it more in a metaphorical or symbolic terms, like a metaphorical cross. My daily commute is the cross I have to bear. Or... My screaming children, that's the cross I have to bear. But when the disciples heard Jesus say, take up your cross, they knew exactly what Jesus was referring to. It wasn't some kind of metaphorical or symbolic cross. It was literal and physical death. It was death. And from church history, we learn that Peter and Andrew and Philip, they were all crucified for their Savior. In fact, from church history, we learned that 11 out of the 12 disciples died as martyrs. So this wasn't some metaphorical or symbolic cross. This was a literal death, a literal cross. 
This death is necessary because it's the only way we can enter God's kingdom. Death to self, death to our desires, death to our dreams. J.C. Ryle, Pastor J.C. Ryle writes, True Christianity brings with it a daily cross in this life, while it offers us a crown of glory in the life to come. The flesh must be daily crucified. The devil must be daily resisted. The world must be daily overcome. There is a warfare to be waged and a battle to be fought. No cross, no crown. No cross, no crown. There is sinful flesh still living inside of each one of us that has to be daily crucified. A devil that prowls around like a roaring lion that has to be daily resisted. The world with all of its seductions and temptations that have to be daily overcome. And that's difficult. Impossible. Without God's supernatural help. That's why Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Remember what he said after that. Few find it. There are few who find that path to life. And we need to be reminded of that. We might need to be reminded of how hard discipleship is because we love our comfort. We live in a country and a culture that loves comfort. When the weather begins to get warm, we reach for that air conditioner. When I'm at the grocery store, I see that line looking like it's going to be a little longer than I expect. And I, I, I look, I'm scanning, I'm trying to find a shorter line. When the traffic begins to back up, I'm looking for another route. We have to realize we're not all that different from Peter and the other disciples. There is a satanic impulse inside each one of us to skip over the cross and go to the crown. When that prosperity gospel offers that, that crown now by skipping over the cross. And what that prosperity gospel is, is a satanic replacement of the true gospel. The true gospel of suffering and self-denial and the cross that took Jesus to his death in a path that all of us have to walk on as well. I'm pretty sure most of us here at Risen Hope that we're not listening to prosperity preachers, the prosperity gospel. But I believe that we as a church are still susceptible, we're still vulnerable to something I'll call a soft prosperity gospel. What do I mean by a soft prosperity gospel? It's that we as his disciples can have this subconscious thoughts, these subconscious expectations that if I follow Jesus, then I'm in for some smooth sailing. If I follow Jesus, then God will give me what I want. Successful marriage, successful career, no problem with bills, no sickness. We can have this subconscious expectation that life is going to be easy and discipleship won't be hard. So let me pause there for a minute and, and for us to reflect. What kind of expectations do we have as a church? What kind of expectations do we have as disciples of Jesus? Do we expect life without death? Do we expect a crown without a cross? Do we expect comfort in this life without any suffering? This was a reality that God reminded me of even this past week. We're in the middle of a huge basement renovation project. Our, our basement has been completely gutted. We're 
we're moving plumbing around. Uh, our contractors have been doing a lot of work the last several weeks. And things have been moving along. And Teresa and I, we, we like to check out the work at the end of each day just to see how things are moving along, take pictures, and just note the progress. This past week, as I went down there, as I looked around, there were some things that weren't according to my expectations. I, I had envisioned certain things to be laid out a certain way, but they weren't done exactly the way I wanted. And, and it was bothering me. I was anxious. I was fearful. But I'm the kind of person who likes to just bottle it all in and just kind of, you know, move on with life and just power through. But Teresa, she's amazing. She sees everything. She can see right through that. She knew that something was wrong, that, that something wasn't sitting well with me, that I, was, that I was in inner turmoil. I was anxious. I was fearful. And she said, hey, I, I think we just need to pray. I'm like, you are so right. And I just needed to pray because I was struggling. I needed to put my desires to death, my preferences to death, my own need for control to death. And Jesus here, in big, bold font, is giving us full, full disclosure that discipleship means death. That disciples are going to be persecuted. Disciples are going to be are going to be hated. They're going to suffer, even be betrayed by our own families. Jesus offers us a cross in this life that we might gain a crown in the next life. The cross of death first and a crown of life later. The missionary Jim Elliot, who gave his life as a martyr, put it so well. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus here in these verses is reminding us that, hey, we have come into this world naked. We're going to leave this world naked. We can take nothing with us. As one evangelist pointed out, you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. And Jesus is reminding us that it's stupid to live for this world because it doesn't last. It doesn't last. It's foolish to give up eternal life for the temporary pleasure of this world because this world doesn't last. Jesus says, what can you give in exchange for your soul? What Jesus is saying is you can have all the money in the world. You can have all the real estate, all the land, all the buildings, all the stock of every corporation, and that will still leave you eternally bankrupt on the day of judgment because that can't redeem your soul. Financial advisors will often tell you to hedge your bets. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. If you invest in uh, stock in the United States, invest also in foreign stocks. If one asset, doesn't, one asset doesn't do well, hopefully another will do better. And there's wisdom in that. But that's not how the kingdom of God works. You can't hedge your bets with Jesus. You have to have all your eggs in one basket. You're either all in for Jesus or you're not. You either save your life now and lose it later, but you can't save it now and save it later. You can't have it both ways. You save your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your life for Jesus' sake, you'll save it. That means you can't serve God and money. You can only have one master. You can't serve God and your own comfort 
and your own lust. You can only have one master. You're only committed to one path of life. That's why we see the marriage analogy used over and over again. We are the bride of Christ. You're either married to Christ or you're married to sin. That means you either value Christ above everything and anything in this world or you value something else above Christ. And if you're a disciple here this afternoon, if you have given up everything to follow Jesus, then you see the supreme worth of King Jesus. You have seen how valuable, how precious, how awesome, how worth it he is compared to everything else. That means compared to Jesus, nothing else has value in this world or nothing else has value in this life. And the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 10 puts it so well. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. To be a disciple is to say with the Apostle Paul, to live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ, to die is gain. So following Jesus, we follow Jesus by denying ourselves and taking up our cross. But these are invisible realities for the most part. How do you know that this is true, short of getting martyred, which is not something I recommend, not something that you should go looking for unless the Lord calls you to it. But how do others know that this is true? How do others know that you're a disciple? How does this world know that you are a true disciple? Someone doesn't just walk up to the U.S. Embassy and say, I'm a U.S. citizen, let me into your country. The U.S. Embassy has to verify it. Just because someone claims it doesn't mean it's true. The same way, you and I, we don't just walk up to the gates of heaven and say, well, I'm a disciple. God has to verify it. In the earthly institution that Jesus has authorized to verify who are his disciples and who aren't, that earthly institution is the church. The church. The church has been authorized by King Jesus to determine who are disciples and who aren't. So the invisible realities of discipleship, taking up your cross and following Jesus, these invisible realities are made visible through baptism, through the Lord's Supper, through membership. The church is a kingdom outpost, meaning that the church is an embassy of the kingdom of heaven, where these invisible realities of discipleship are made visible to us and made visible to the watching world. And we become a disciple. When someone becomes a disciple, they enter the church through baptism. Jesus in Matthew 28, this is post-resurrection, says, And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
The Christian life, the life of discipleship, begins with baptism. Baptism is a public declaration that you and I, that we identify with Jesus. That we identify with Jesus in his death and resurrection. It means there's no such thing as a private faith or a private Christian. It is a public declaration. And it's done in the name, the singular name, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Singular name, because we believe, that, believe and worship one God, the triune God. And that name indicates ownership. That this disciple who's getting baptized now belongs to God and submits to God. It's important for us to consider right at this moment, who does a baptism? Who does the baptism? No one baptizes himself. You don't go to a baptism and you know, watch someone jump in the pool themselves and say, hey, I baptize myself in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It doesn't work that way. You don't show up to an embassy and declare yourself to be a citizen of a country. People don't baptize themselves. It's the church that has been authorized by King Jesus to baptize disciples and to bring them into the church body. Baptisms are always done by the church. And baptism is that picture that's worth a thousand words. It's a picture worth a thousand words that teaches us what has happened to this person getting baptized. Romans chapter 6, 1 through 4, the Apostle Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So when you see baptism, when you see a disciple plunged into the water through immersion, you see the gospel. You see that the old life of sin, the old life of self, it's dead, it's buried, it's gone. And when you see that disciple come up out of the water, you see new life in Christ. You see, just as Christ was raised from the dead and now lives to God, this disciple has been raised from the dead and now lives to God. In baptism, a disciple says, I am now denying myself. I'm taking up the cross. I am dying to self. Notice, though, that you can't have one or the other. There's only two masters, sin or Christ. You're either dead to sin and alive to Christ, or you're alive to sin and dead to Christ. You can't have both sin and Christ. It's, it's one or the other, sin or Christ. That means if you're not dead to sin, that means you are dead to Christ. That means if you still enjoy sin, sin is still alive in you, you can't bear to get rid of sin. If sin isn't dead to you, then you are dead to Christ. But baptism is the way a disciple proclaims, hey, I am dead to sin, and now I live for Jesus. And baptism proclaims the gospel. 
and just this, this disciple is dead to sin and lives to Jesus, you too must repent of your sins and believe the gospel. You too must put sin to death and live for Jesus. Baptism gives us this window into the future as well. A window into the future for what will happen when Jesus comes back. Because the floodwaters of judgment flowed over Jesus and now over us in baptism, we're spared. We're rescued on that final day of judgment. We're spared from eternal death and raised up to eternal life. Now, there's a couple things I need to clarify about baptism. Baptism doesn't save. We don't believe that you're regenerated at baptism. Christ saves, and he saves through faith. Right? It's by grace that you are saved through faith. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. So even though baptism doesn't save, it shows people that you're saved. Also need to clarify that baptism is for believers. So while infants can be saved, you remember John the Baptist leapt in his mother's womb when he heard the voice of Mary. Infants can be saved. Normally we don't have any evidence that an infant or a baby is saved. That's why we only baptize those who have a credible profession of faith. In the New Testament, every single example of a baptism is of believers. It's believers who are buried with Christ. Believers who are raised with Christ. Believers who have put on Christ. If baptism is the sacrament that initiates a disciple into the body of Christ, invisible reality made visible, the Lord's Supper is the sacrament that shows our ongoing fellowship, our ongoing connection with Christ and with one another. Jesus in Matthew 26, verses 26 through 28, instituted the Lord's Supper. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. When we as a church, when we gather and we share the Lord's Supper together, we are remembering Christ. We're remembering his death. That bread points us, this bread is a sign that points us to the body of Christ broken on the cross. The cup is a sign that points us to the blood of the covenant, the blood that was poured out at the cross for our redemption, for the forgiveness of our sins. What we share together in this Lord's Supper, to use use the language of another pastor, this Lord's Supper makes us a church. Now, what do I mean by the Lord's Supper makes us a church? Well, as was previously mentioned, and as we heard last week from Tim, the church is not a building. It's not 600 Vermont Road. It's not a physical location. The church is the people. It's the people. But here's the question. Which people? Are Muslims included in the Lord's Supper? Or atheists? Or anyone who wants to partake? Well, it's not anyone. It's those with saving faith in Christ those who have confessed 
Christ and have taken up their cross and followed Jesus. And it's these people, these disciples, these people and these only who are brought into the church through baptism. And it's these people and these people only who partake of the Lord's Supper as a sign of our ongoing fellowship and union with Christ and his people. 1 Corinthians 10, 17 says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. And we need to follow the logic of the Apostle Paul. The logic. He says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. So that one bread makes us one body. The Lord's Supper makes us a church. So, th- so when we partake of this one bread, all of us as individual people with different backgrounds, different ages, different ethnicities, different races, we become one body, the one body of Christ. As one pastor said, baptism joins one to the many, and the Lord's Supper joins the many to the one. So baptism joins one to the many. So individual believers come to faith. Individuals come together through baptism, one to the many. The one is joined to the community. But the Lord's Supper joins the many. The the many of us sitting here from all different backgrounds and walks of life, the many are joined to the one, the one body of Christ. That's why we have to treat the sacrament with reverence and honor because we don't want to profane the blood of the covenant. We don't want to eat the bread or drink the blood, you know, eat the bread or drink the cup in an unworthy manner and be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells us to examine ourselves before we partake of the bread and the cup. That means we have to confess all known sin, that we once again are reminding ourselves that, that we are broken sinners in need of a Savior. We need to examine ourselves. We need to make sure there's no unreconciled relationships, that there's no conflict between another brother or sister. We need to make sure that we are living in the reconciliation that we enjoy in Christ. And that also means that the Lord's Supper is is barred for unrepentant sinners. Unrepentant sinners who choose sin over choosing Christ are barred from the Lord's table. You're going to hear more about that next week when Pastor Leo teaches on church discipline. But for now, we have to remember that we as a church, we have a responsibility to keep the flock holy. Just as you know, God said, be holy as I am holy. We as flock, we as people, we must be holy even as he is holy. And just like baptism, the Lord's Supper, Lord's Supper gives us a window into the future. A window into the future when one day we will see the purified bride of Christ enjoying unending table fellowship with Jesus. Unending table fellowship. Have you ever got to to the end of an incredible meal with people you love? The end of an amazing vacation, maybe at the beach, and you're just sad that it has to come to an end. That you have to go home. That... People have to go back. That that meal has to come to an end. The fellowship has to come to an end. Well, church, one day we're going to enjoy never-ending table fellowship with King Jesus and everyone else who loves King Jesus. 
But how do we know who will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb one day? How do we know one day who will be there? We'll see who's partaking of the Lord's Supper right now. These are the people who will one day be enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb with Jesus. The Lord's Supper gives us a foretaste of heavenly glory, that unending table fellowship in the presence of Jesus. As one theologian said, the sacraments don't give us a better Christ, but they allow us to receive Christ better. So faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. That's why the preached word is central to who we are as a church. But God gave us five senses, and the sacraments are the way that we experience and enjoy the gospel through our other four senses. That means we see baptism. We see someone buried and raised to life. We see the bread and the cup. We can taste and touch and smell the bread and the cup. And these sacraments, as we partake of them as a church, they're a tangible expression of Christ's love for his people. They're a tangible reminder that he is present with us, that we are enjoying this new covenant that Jesus has secured for us and that he is coming soon. So baptism and Lord's Supper are visible proofs, the visible proof that distinguishes the church from the world, the invisible made visible. So you only need to look around at the church and you can see these are the people that Jesus died for. These are the people who now live for Jesus. These are the people who belong to the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the flock of Christ. These are the people who have committed themselves to Jesus and his people. And that commitment to Jesus and to his people, we express that commitment to the local body through something we call church membership. Church membership. Membership, you, you demonstrate that we have, each one of us, a unique responsibility to your Risen Hope brother and sister that you don't have towards the Christian living in Australia or to, a, to another Christian who goes to another street, you know, who goes to another church down the street. You have a responsibility that's unique to your Risen Hope brothers and sister through membership. The responsibility to speak truth in love, to bear one, with one another in love, to be your brother's keeper. And as pastors, we are so grateful that God's grace is so evident in your lives. The way that we see our church members love one another, pray for one another, serve one another, give to one another. So just as baptism and Lord's, the Lord's Supper are the outward evidence of the inward reality, Membership is the outward evidence of the inward reality. Who belongs to the body of Christ? If you want to know one day who will belong to the body of Christ forever, you need to see who belongs to the body of Christ today. That means a Christian without a church is like a head without a body, like a citizen without a country. So how do you know if you're a disciple? How do you know that you're saved? How do you know that you can have assurance that if you died, you'd spend eternity with King Jesus, that you, your sins are forgiven and washed away? Well, have you been baptized? Do you partake of the Lord's Supper? Are you a member of a gospel-preaching church? 
if these, these three things aren't true for you, then you have to ask the question, why? Why haven't you been baptized if you're a disciple? Do you make Sunday attendance here with the church, with the people of God? Is that a priority so that you can partake of the Lord's Supper? Why haven't you committed yourself to, to a local church body through membership? And you have to think about the reason. Well, maybe you're, you're not willing to give up comfort or convenience or time. Relationships are messy. But the evidence that you'll one day be part of the great assembly, the great body of Christ, the great redeemed congregation stretching from all time, including people from every tribe, language, nation, and people, that great congregation, the evidence that you will be part of that congregation on that day is that you're a part of God's people, God's congregation today when it's messy, when it's hard. Our next baptism service for Risen Hope is Sunday, July 21st. If you haven't been baptized as a disciple, we as a church would be honored to baptize you. And we as a church, we celebrate the Lord's Supper twice a month on the first and third Sundays. So make sure you're here every Sunday, and especially on those Sundays. And our, our membership class, Explore, is going on. You can jump in at any time. And we encourage you to go through that so you can think through, where does the Lord want me to commit as a disciple? You follow Jesus by denying yourself and taking up your cross. Invisible realities made visible through baptism, the Lord's Supper, and church membership. And verified at the second coming. And verified at the second coming. We as a church, we will receive those who have confessed Jesus as Lord. We'll baptize them. We'll even admit them to the Lord's Supper. But we're not going to get it perfectly. On this side of eternity, there will still be those who profess to be disciples, but are just pretenders, that are just hypocrites. That's why we wait for the day that the Son of Man is coming with His angels in the glory of the Father. Because at that time, He'll sort out the wheat from the weeds, the good fish from the bad fish, the true disciples from the false disciples. And on that day, the day that we're looking forward to, we as true disciples will partake of the heavenly reward, the reward that King Jesus will offer to each one of us. So that means every time Jesus sees you deny yourself, that Jesus sees you choosing him over choosing sin, Jesus will reward you one day. And that is the comfort and hope for us as his people. We're going to respond now, through celebrating the Lord's Supper. So I'd like to ask the ushers to come forward. Uh, the Lord's Supper is, is, is a fitting response for us to hearing God's Word. The Lord's Supper is for disciples, for those among us who have denied ourselves and we're taking up the cross, we're following Jesus. And if this doesn't describe you, we kindly ask you to refrain from participating but take the time to observe what Jesus is doing with us right now among his church the Lord's Supper is an invisible takes these invisible realities of discipleship and makes them visible the invisible reality that we're united to Jesus that Jesus has died for us that one day we will be with him forever these are made visible through the Lord's Supper 
I'd like to ask the ushers to begin distributing the elements. Thank you. And as they're distributing these elements, uh, take the time to reflect on the love of Christ for sinners like you and me, for sinners who only deserve God's judgment because we have fallen short of his perfect standard of holiness. That God's he didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all so that we could enjoy him forever. Meditate on the love of God for sinners who only deserve hell, sinners like you and me. Reflect on his love and also anticipate that final day when we will one day be in the presence of Jesus and the presence of all of God's people in unending table fellowship. So reflect on his love anticipate that final day. partake, just look around you. Look around and see those who are enjoying and eating and feasting on Christ. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Church, let's partake of the bread together.